Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm your co-host, the third most important member of a two-man team, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is Kingston's favorite son, Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? The light, the one. Wow. (laughs) Delusions of messianic prophecy going on here. Doing well, Mark. How are you this week? I'm very well. I'm eager to talk about board games, because that's what we do here. We're going to talk about the Aurus, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, namely the game we reviewed last year. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And finally, our topic this week, which is sort of bittersweet, we're going to be talking about the works of board game designer Serge Leger, because he unfortunately passed away this week after a protracted illness. We're not going to be talking so much about his life, but more about the products that he made that touched our lives. So, Walker, what did we review last year? Mark, one year ago exactly, we did a review of a game called The Red Cathedral. And it was a great sort of dice manipulation around the rondelle, building up the famous Red Cathedral. And I still have it. I still enjoy it. It is somewhat kind of my shelf of shame. There's a duo. See, I bought, mm-hmm. there's there was a big uh, expansion for Red Cathedral called Red Cathedral Contractors, and it's up there with Orlean Stories as the only two games that are on my shelf of shame. Uh, well, I would issue a minor emendation to your notion of it having a big expansion. Everything about the Red Cathedral is small, which is great. Small box, small box expansion, very, very compact. I will say that having played Teletum and finding it relatively uninspired, and having played Woodwork and founding it, you know, kind of overblown in a very traditional kind of Vladimir Suki kind of way, I that makes me more inclined to look favorably upon the Red Cathedral. I like it just fine. It's, it's, it's a pretty good resource manipulation euro, but it's got a little bit more player interaction than those do, you know, the competition for the different spires, and I'd be vaguely curious to see what they do with the expansion. And that is Red Cathedral. 
Mark, what a great start to 2023. We played some very excellent games this week. Let's start with Autobahn. This is designed by designer Fabio Lupiano and Nestori Mangone. Published by Alley Cat Games. Alley Cat Games has been surprising me more and more every time we played Tengaro. It wasn't great, but the production was fantastic. It had some interesting ideas there. They put out Internal Palace, which I've heard great things about. I definitely want to try it. Have you played Internal Palace yet? No. And Dice Hospital, which is not the best design of all, but it was very interesting. Dice manipulation gave you the feel of, you know, rushing patients in and out of the hospital. And they have an upcoming Kickstarter, Arborea, which I have also pledged for. Like a very colorful game. That's an understatement. Yes. And now they've come out with Autobahn. Also a colorful game. It is very colorful. And it's historical. It's like oddly historical. It is. I found that very intriguing. You start with the construction of the Autobahn, which is during the Cold War. And then it's a three era game. And in era three, there's German reunification and East Germany opens up. And that's neat. I like it when there's a little bit of historicity to the Euro game. There's a subtly propagandistic element to it, though. Very subtle. I, I don't even. I don't think it's intentional. I just find it funny. The it's almost as though what precipitates the fall of the Berlin Wall is that the Autobahn is almost completely finished in West Germany, and it's almost like the Eastern Germans are like, "Look at their highways. We must join them now." <laughs> as I say, I don't think that's actually what the design intent was. I just find it funny. Yeah, and you get to put little, uh, it's like a, it's a card action selection type game. You get to put out, uh, fuel pumps and, and, uh, do deliveries. You get trucks that travel along the Autobahn. There is lots going on in this game. Recipe fulfillment, all sorts of things. Well, it's more root connection than recipe fulfillment. I, well, I know there is some in there though. That's true. Root connection. That's true. There's this idea that at the start of the game, you're given a couple cities, but it's, it's less about connecting the route and more about upgrading the route as best as possible because there's a variety of ways you can make the, the route better. Uh, many of them are very expensive and or time consuming and or difficult to do. Some of them easier than others. I would say that this is sort of uh, Fabio Lopiano and Nestore Mangone kind of doing their impression of Alexander Fister because the card play reminds me a lot of an Alexander Fister design. You're playing cards to various columns. The columns themselves can be upgraded by a variety of means. You're limited by what you can play where. They're color-coded. Eventually, you take the cards back. You're upgrading various parts of your board. So Fabio Lopiano initially came up on our radio with Kalamala, which is one of our favorite Euros of uh, the past five years, I dare say. And we, I was disappointed by Ragusa because I thought it was... Uh, it had some of the similar elements that made Kalamala appealing, namely a somewhat clever action selection mechanism where you can draft, but I found the overall economy much, much less interesting and what you were doing less interesting than the area majority struggle. Uh, if if I didn't know that Fabio Lopiano had designed Autobahn, I wouldn't know. This doesn't feel at all like his prior games. It is much more rules-intensive, much longer, and again, feels far more like an Alexander Pfister design. I'm not, this is not to say that it's derivative, and this isn't even a criticism because I thoroughly enjoyed Autobahn. It's just very, very different from his previous work. The only criticism that I really have of Autobahn, I'm looking forward to playing some more, is that it's very long. It's a solid two-hour experience, probably longer for your first play. And you're doing enough things, like you're building roads, you're upgrading roads, you're you're bedazzling the roads, you're trucking various things, you're making, you're looking at the map of Europe again and figuring, wait, where's that country? Oh, I don't know what that flag is. Look up the flag. Oh, yeah, Sweden. Okay. And <laughs> you're sending pharmaceuticals off to Sweden on these adorable wooden trucks with these adorable little wooden containers. I don't know how it would feel with more players. We only played with two. 
And I had some disappointments there, in part because I felt like some of the challenges that the game was throwing at us were somewhat trivially hit. Like, our, our roots were maximally upgraded relatively early. Uh, the, the board upgrades were relatively simple to come by. And I feel that with more players competing over the same stuff, because the structure of the game is there's a fixed amount of things to do, I feel that the competition might feel more intense, and you might have to make more important trade-offs. Yeah, and there's huge timing considerations. It's it's when to f- pass the routes, when to pick up your cards, because someone might you know put a rest station down you know before you can, or because like Mark said, uh, certain cards deal with certain routes, and you can look over and see what they've played all their orange cards. So I can scoop my cards up now and and be free to work on orange, and they'll have to waste a turn picking up, even if they do or do not. Very much enjoyed. Can't wait for more plays. And I really like how focused the scoring is. One of the aspects that I focused more on, and I think you focused less on, was manipulating people in the overall administration and bureaucracy of the highways. It feels so so very true to the Autobahn, and a lot of German stereotypes flying uh, flying around here. And the the timing there matters as well, because there's a fixed amount of spots, and sometimes you want to be in the lower offices, sometimes you want to be in the higher offices. And that feeds into one of the things that I often really like in the medium-heavy Euro games that I tend to prefer, is that the scoring is relatively focused. All of the scoring is in one place on the board, and you can just say, this is it. This is what we score at the end of the game, and that's all. And granted, that's a bit of an oversimplification, because what you do is you promote managers to a certain level, and those managers then cause various things to be worth various amounts of points, but it doesn't end up being a sprawling combinatoric mess, so that you can't easily sort of eyeball what's going on and, and what you need to do in order to get points. Yeah, as I say, I'm looking forward to playing again, uh, looking forward to playing with three. Uh, I don't know that I want to go j- jump straight to four. As I say, it's very long. I would probably, certainly after playing with two players, I think I, I would have preferred a lot of time to be shaved off, especially of the middle era. The middle era, we were kind of scrambling for things to do. We'd done a lot of the easy stuff we wanted to do. We were far away from doing all the long-term stuff, so there was kind of a paucity of middle-term goals. But with three, possibly all our short-term goals that we accomplished in Era 1 will only be able to accomplish in Era 2, and I think that would really improve the pacing. So, there's that. That was Audubon by Fabio Lopiano and Nestore Mangone. Got to play some more games of Soda Smugglers. This is the Reiner Knizia card game by Bitewing Games. It's kind of sort of his answer to Sheriff of Nottingham, and it's certainly the case that everyone at the table, myself included, definitely prefer it to Sheriff of Nottingham. There's a fair amount of luck involved, but for an incredibly quick card game, it's hard to object too strongly. You're basically dealt five cards, and from those five cards, you select what three you're going to play, and sometimes you don't end up with quite a variety of what you're going to do round on round as a, as a result. But there's lots of fun moments of hilarity where someone gets caught trying to pull a fast one and smuggle too much, and the inspector is specifically instructed in the rules that they ha- have to sincerely apologize if they accidentally arrest somebody who has not violated the strict limits on soda importation. And so that's always good for, for some laughs, reminding someone that there has to be a sincere apology and then talking about whether or not you accept the apology and this, that, and the other. Good fun. Much preferred to Sheriff of Nottingham, but a similar kind of bluffing, how much can I get away with, sort of manipulating the table. The other thing to note, though, about Soda Smugglers and its manipulation of luck, more on this later, is one of the great things that, you know, the hallmarks of a truly great designer like Reiner Knizia is, even though it may be luck-dependent, at least things keep happening. There are interesting moments, there are things to be done, the meta evolves, and there are interesting events. 
leading to greater friction and greater interesting interaction between different players. And that's definitely true of Soda Smugglers. If you end up uh, with, with a draw that forces you to be incredibly risky, well then, that's going to lead to an interesting consequence, whether you get caught or not. If you're l- left with a draw that forces you to be incredibly conservative, the same thing applies. And so, of the three games in the so-called Criminal Capers collection, I think that Soda Smugglers is definitely the easiest sale, if for no other reason than the player count is very, very flexible, and it definitely has the greatest degree of social interaction of the uh, two other games. That's not to say that I don't enjoy the other two games, the other two games being Pooh Mafiosi and Hot Lead. I keep wanting to call it Hot Lead. Hot. Well, maybe I like that game better if Walker's going to narrate it. <laughs> anyway, Soda Smugglers, Reiner Knizia, Bitewing Games. I was lucky enough to introduce three new players to Woodcraft. This is designed by Ross Arnold and Vladimir Succi, put out by Delicious Games. And I like how this played much differently than the, the other games I've played it. We were really reduced of how much uh, prestige points that we got from the orders, as in almost zero so we didn't move up this track, so our orders were worth almost nothing, which led to very odd sort of game state. But still, they very much enjoyed it. In this game, you you go up the reputation track, and you get to multiply that by how many orders you've completed. Because it's not enough just to satisfy orders. No, no. You need to go up a track that then multiply. There needs yeah, to be sorry. tracks. I'm There's sorry. so many tracks. I'm sorry. My apologies. I know. It's the only game that has tracks. I understand this. <laughs> I'm not picking on it specifically, jeez. But I find it very interesting. They really enjoyed the the dial mechanism of, of of picking actions, rotating the wheel, or choosing certain actions and using tokens to pick to actually do a different action. That was used so much in this game that I, m- I remember our first game. It was barely used at all. It was almost like, okay, what do these lanterns do? Like two <laughs> two thirds of the way through, right? But always still enjoying woodcraft was even luckier that I could leave it there by by lots of people asking for it, so I'm sure it was played a lot more, and that makes me happy. Woodcraft. Played Chinatown by Karsten Hartvig. Chinatown is a kind of a classic of the negotiation genre. I'm not a huge fan of it for two reasons. I find that when it is being random, it's not being random in an interesting way, and near the end game, and there's a very small number of rounds, so the end game sneaks up on you pretty quickly, uh, there's not really much grist for negotiation. Allow me to explain. I've said this before, but in the early game, you're just drawing random lots of property. And some people might end up with adjacent lots, which is what you want. The pro- th- This is doubly problematic, not just for balance reasons, but when you have adjacent lots, you cannot be persuaded to break them up. There's nothing that you would be willing to exchange it for other than other adjacent property. And so, again, contrast that to soda smugglers, right? Something random happens and the game state progresses in an interesting way. In Chinatown, a negotiation game, if somebody gets lucky, they're just not going to negotiate. If they get what they want from the bag, there's no grist for negotiation. So that's one one knock on it. So that, that can apply to any number of the rounds in the game, because in Chinatown, you're constantly getting new stuff every round. In the end game, everything is open information, everything is deterministic income, and so you know exactly what everything is worth or potentially worth. So if I've got this tile that I know for certain is worth 20,000 bucks to some other guy, it's like, okay, I'll sell it to you for 10, we'll split the money, we're done. Like, that's it. No real room for interesting negotiation, not real room for lots of interesting transactions. So, I mean, as a consequence, I find Chinatown pretty inoffensive as a game, but as a negotiation game, I think it really fails. The mechanisms don't lead to the kind of negotiation states that I enjoy. And you can have lighter negotiation games. That's fine. Indeed, Ryder Kennedy has designed several, <laughs> but they don't all have to be 
Citadel Confluence. I completely understand that, but Chinatown just doesn't do it for me because I feel that the systems lead to stagnant game states and uninteresting deals. Uh, so I'm willing to play it because it's relatively quick, and if it's what people want to do, that's fine, and especially to make numbers because, again, Chinatown, you want to play with four or five. So there were three sad people trying to play Chinatown, and I'm like, all right, I'll make your dim sum dreams come true. And then, in most insulting of all, nobody got to complete a dim sum restaurant. Oh. How offensive is that? This is why I, I, I don't know why in my head I always compare uh, Chinatown to Big City. Because it's the same sort of like trying to collect numbers that are adjacent yes. to each other. But at least in Big City, you get to put these nice, you know, fancy <laughs> buildings out on the board. It's true. And Big City is less about negotiation and more about the underlying economics, which I think makes things better. So at that point, if somebody gets adjacent lots, Interesting things get to happen rather than uninteresting things get to happen at any rate. So, again, I'm willing to play Chinatown, but it's not one of my favorites, and I don't think it is. it, it particularly deserves its uh, vaunted space in the negotiation genre. So that's by Kristen Hartvig. We played the, Z, the Z-Man edition from 1999. Lastly, for me, I got to play Atiwa. This is the new design from Uwe Rosenberg, and it has bats. And Uwe Rosenberg never fails to sort of switch up like using the same sort of ideas but manipulating them in a different way so in very not very much player interaction in this game uh and the action selection is is very i don't want to say bland but it's just it's bog standard worker placement it, yeah it's and 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 what you get is bog standard as well but where the game shines is manipulating your board you're trying to get fruit on trees you're trying to get bats to go out and eat the fruit you're trying to uh uh, train workers to be able to work with the bats, all of this stuff. I'm a little bit worried because the the on our first play the scores were so close. Yes, I'm worried that the worker placement is one of those things where each, no matter what action you do, it's going to be point one five points, right? And yeah. so everything is going to cycle. I'm thinking there are ways that you can can specialize in something and maybe run the points up. I'm not sure. More plays will let us know. I'm sure. I share your concern. We had this moment of realization in the first couple turns of the game where we were looking down at the bottom of the very, very high-value cards in Adiwa, and someone's like, oh, wow, that, that card's worth 10 points. And they're like, wait a minute, but in order to buy the card, you need to spend seven points to get it, so you're really only gaining three? Okay. And that definitely, I, I thought of that when we were finally tallying the scores. And I think the winning score was somewhere around 110, and the lowest score was somewhere in either the upper 90s or the low 100s, couldn't remember. And that doesn't necessarily bode well. But I did have a great time in Adiwa managing my own little economy. And you're right, it's not so much about the worker placement. It's, do you have room for your bats? Do you have room, do you have enough trees to hold all the fruit that in turn are related to how many bats you have to begin with. So it's this closed economy that you're messing around with, but having enough room for everything and being able to exploit what you have and their minor timing elements with the breeding considerations, all of that I found very, very, very enjoyable and very much like every other Uwe Rosenberg game, slightly different than what he had done before, right? So you're not drowning in cards here for different professions. Here you have a lot of different landscape tiles and they don't have as much personality, say, as, say, the professions or minor improvements of Agricola, but they are surprisingly neat. I got a Bow Bow Forest and the trees there could host bats as well uh, as well as fruit or instead of fruit. And that was kind of cool. And there was a weird bat cave and there was all the, uh, and the haunted house. The haunted house and neat stuff like that. So it was it was surprisingly charming and effortless as far as Euro management games go. I have very mild misgivings about the way it frames the people of Ghana into trained and untrained. 
and the untrained ones are dirty and the trained ones aren't. And I'm like, ooh, that, that just made me feel a little bit awkward as, you know, uh, a white Western dude playing around with Ghanaians. Uh, there was some concern when the, before the game was published. Why is there a bat on the cover as opposed to an actual Ghanaian? Because, uh, you know, the, the other games all have, like, a picture of some white dude on them. But that, uh, having played the game, it's all about the bats. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is not a game really about people. This is mostly about bats. The people are incidental. So at that point, I'm, I'm, I, I, that concern went away. Flying away on the wings of a fruit bat. White and leather, leather, leathery, That was kind of beautiful. Well no, done, Walker. No, it wasn't. No, I, I think it was nice. <laughs> and I was able to appreciate it despite the fact that on occasion I have mild flashbacks to the time I was attacked by a bat and had to get rabies shots. No, that's not funny. Eh, I don't know. It kind of is. <laughs> At any rate, it is the next Uwe Rosenberg worker placement game. It is it is uh, not as tight as Agricola. It's much more loose. You do have to worry about feeding your family, but there is, well, not even your family, but the, the, the villagers in your, your, your sundry villages. It, the pressure there is definitely closer to the Caverna end of looseness than the Agricola end of, oh my gosh, they're all going to starve. I think it's even lighter because all of, all of the things that you feed to the villagers aren't worth points. Not all of them. Most of them. Like well, the, the, you have to feed goats, goats and goats only go up, you know, by a point. Like you're going to get points for them from getting them off your board in the closed economy. But even if you get them all back, you're only going to be at, you know, five or so points. Yeah, but that's if you've set yourself up properly. True. Like in Agricola, if you've set yourself up properly, you're not going to have to worry about feeding your family ever. Anyway. No, but in Agricola, I would say like the 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 points you get for sheep in Agricola, you know, is you know gets pretty big the more sheep you get. Not so much here in, in only a total Agricola. of four if you get a anyway. Well, we can quibble about that. It doesn't feel ne- nearly as tight as Agricola, either in terms of the worker placement or in terms of having to feed your family. Uh, but there is, as I say, a delightful degree of variety in terms of the different landscape tiles that come up. And managing your little board of landscape tiles is delightful. Uh, so it is one of his lighter offerings, but certainly not as light as something as Rickolt, just to try to put it in terms of his other offerings. I think I had a great time. I'd happily play it again. Looking forward to it. That is Atua. Played a game of Eclipse, Second Dawn for the Galaxy, and this is absolutely in spades a game, a session of a game that really highlights what we said in the review. I remember saying specifically when reviewing the second edition of Eclipse that Eclipse is brilliant when it's not being stupid, and it's stupid when it's not being brilliant. And this session absolutely demonstrated that. The poor person who requested this play of Eclipse. The game tiles got amongst themselves and had a little bit of a discussion, and they decided they hated his face and they wanted him to suffer. He did not pull any planets in the first two rounds of the game. Zero. And so he never had an economy. At all. I don't think he did any serious misplays. And then, by round three or four, when he just had enough things, to, uh, enough pennies to scrape together to have a little bit of an expedition fleet, he ran s- the only way that he... This part might have been partially his fault. I don't know. I wasn't paying attention. The only way he could get back to the rest of the game was through me. And so then I'm like, well, I'm sorry, but no. And so then I got to build a fleet specifically to destroy his ships. That part was fun. <laughs> no, the fleet design is amazing. If if somebody could design a game of Eclipse where they just stripped out the exploration part 
and then, of course, altered the other mechanisms to compensate. It wouldn't be a simple cut-and-paste job, but but nonetheless had this degree of ship customization and building your fleets to spec and changing the customization of your ships in response to other people's technological development. I would be all over that. And that's one of the things that I, that I really like about Imperium of Contention. You don't have that degree of customization, but you do have this idea of, I'm playing with toys in this lovely space sandbox. So very different games, but that's one of the things that I like about it. And you don't get hosed by the exploration in Imperium of Contention, the way you do sometimes in Eclipse Second Dawn for the Galaxy. Despite that, everyone had fun, but I really did get the solid impression that the scores were entirely reflective of how good people's exploration pulls were in the first couple of rounds. Are there ways to compensate for them? Yeah, kind of, a bit. But at the end of the day, it's, I mean, ultimately, it's a very, very weak element of the design. And it's something that I wish someone could design out of it. And it's kind of part and parcel of a lot of the 4X genre when you have that kind of map. And it's one of the reasons why when games talk about how they have an exploration element, I'm like, I get very, very nervous. At any rate, a good time was had despite the problems, but there were absolutely problems. Eclipse, second dawn for the galaxy. It was a great week for party games. Played a lot of the old favorites. Codenames, just one attribute. Played another game of Karate Tamati. The Reiner Knizia game that I wish was more like Beowulf, but isn't really, but it's still a pretty good game of, of Press Your Luck, and uh, I was once again reminded that my copy of Karate Tamati used to be owned by Rudiger Dorn, so that's pretty great. <laughs> Played Monikers for the first time ever, which is, means I'm very, very late to the party. I don't think I've ever played the sort of public domain parlor game celebrities upon which it's clearly based. All that I can really comment on in monikers was uh, some of the choices seemed weird. Like there was a set of cultural references that didn't make sense to anyone at the table. There were references to memes that were really, really aged out. Like it's just, why are you referencing viral YouTube videos? It was, it, it's an odd set of choices. I don't know if in a different group it would work. This was a group of people that ranged in age from, I would say, early 20s to mid 40s. And there were a whole bunch of references that just completely fell at the bottom that like some people were too young to get, some people were too old to get, and it just didn't work. Like Catherine Hepburn, for example, as a reference, moving on from from the the social media or the the viral video references, uh, Catherine Hepburn kind of sort of works because at that point the the youngins can get confused and think they're talking about Audrey Hepburn and start talking about Breakfast at Tiffany's. That's okay. I mean, not that Breakfast at Tiffany's is okay. Oh my goodness, I hate that movie. I hated it even before I was uh, socially progressive. Even even as a young racist child, I saw Breakfast at Tiffany's like people put this to film and then attached their names to it. What? Anyhow, setting all that aside, uh, Monikers is great fun. I'm uh, it, it, it's it's a mainstay of the party game for a reason. I would suspect, uh, not necessarily for people who don't like high pressure and improvisational acting, but nonetheless a solid design. Designed by Alex Hagen, Justin Vickers, who really are some of the kings of the party game sphere. Uh, they've they've done this. They've done Wavelength. Uh, they've also co-designed Spots with John Perry, uh, king of the small box games. Uh, you're in for a good time when Alex Haig and uh, Justin Vickers are attached to a project, I think, uh, published by CMYK in, 20, in 2015, and there are innumerable expansions uh, to be had. So you can kind of customize your set how you want. Suffice to say, if I had a copy of, of Codenames, I would definitely ditch all the ones that were references to YouTube videos oh, or monikers, memes or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Uh, sorry, yes, of monikers. Thank you very much. Uh, but this level of curation had not yet happened, so that's where there is. We also tried a party game called Herd Mentality. It was by Rich Coombs and Dan Penn, published by Big Potato. 
in 2020. And this is because we're v- currently the, the overall zeitgeist mood of so very wrong about games is very much green team wins and herd mentality promises to be something like green team wins. It is not nearly as good as green team wins. It has solid orange team energy. <laughs> I didn't like the questions as much. The scoring elements are slightly more convoluted because in green team wins, everything gets to be explained by green team wins. It's like, what if there's a tie? Green team wins. What if there's equal? Green team wins. Stop it. <laughs> and in her mentality, you actually have to start asking these questions. And there's this, there's this cute pink cow that goes in front of somebody. It's the pink cow of shame. So I was hoping that there might be some sort of like subtle bullying element like cockroach poker. Right. Cockroach poker yeah, is a game yeah, of bullying. It's true. Right? It's true. And so somebody could just sit there with the pink cow and we could mock them like they were a member of Orange Team. Eh, it didn't really shake out that way. So Green Team wins is better. Stick with Green Team wins. Herd mentality was kind of cute, but Green Team wins is vastly superior. And finally for me, I played a game of Senji, but much more on that later. Those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off. My rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Sébastien Dujardin, an operator of Pearl Games, has announced that Pearl Games is closing. Pearl Games is dead. Long live Pearl Games. Because, of I, course, this is right after we do a review of Kinkopolis the very next week. Yeah, we don't, we don't really care about market forces. It, it, it's already been out of print for a while anyway. I know. I'm cares? just saying. Was... I know. It's almost like this was the death knell. He was like, Asmodee was, was thinking, should we close down Pearl Games? Like, well, so very wrong about games. We really like Kinkopolis. Yeah, let's axe them. <laughs> Not that they care. We are so far under their radar, it makes me happy. But anyway, yes. Uh, Sébastien Dujardin uh, was a co-designer of Trois and Ginkopolis was published under Pearl Games. Uh, most recently, Time of Empires was published by Pearl Games. Time of Empires, we both find delightful. 
Uh, a little bit uneven in terms of design, design elements, but a very, very fun real-time experience. And Asmodee acquired them a few years ago and now has shut them down. However, um, Mr. Dujardin has preserved the intellectual property and the rights to all the old IP, and so he is considering whether or not he's going to resurrect Pearl Games in some form. This, I think, is just another consequence of consolidation. Like, Asmodee just buys up all these studios, and at the time, there was all this talk about, oh, don't worry, we will preserve them as independent studios. Like, sure, unless and until you decide to close them. <laughs> so the level of independence here is obviously not total. Anyway, I've enjoyed my time with Pearl Games in the past. I, I, I We're huge fans of Kinkopolis, and I enjoyed experimenting with things like Black Angel and Trois, and I really like Time of Empires. And so it's kind of sad to see them go, uh, and I hope they come back. We didn't stream any games this week, but I did do a big sort of Uwe Rosenberg unboxing segment where... I unboxed the new Agricola 15 and Ottawa and uh, all of, all of the other stuff for Agricola, like Farmers of the Moor and the new expansion for Caverna. All of these things, if you're interested in any of those, check out the stream. We also put out the video for our top 10 of 2022 is now available to watch. I thought it was pretty damn good. <laughs> <laughs> Walker says, Walker is good, says Walker. Tom Jolly, venerable game designer, but also co-designer of the recent Cryo, of which we're big fans, co-designed with Luke Laurie. His, one of his original classic designs is Wiz War, which was published, shall we say, back in the day. And it's been published by various publishers, including most recently by Fantasy Flight. But now it is currently on Kickstarter for a, I don't know, 12th edition. They've stopped counting. It's kind of like the Fast and the Furious movies. If you have to count, you've missed the point. And it is not really definitive edition, but they don't plan on, on publishing more expansions for this. They've gone sort of a, a back-to-basics, bare-bones uh, approach. And so if you're interested in exploring one of the classics, then it is up on Kickstarter now, being published by Steve Jackson Games. Wiz War is sort of a free-for-all manic experience of flinging spells at each other and melting each other's faces. And indeed, when I talk about Black Rose Wars, and I'm a big fan of Black Rose Wars, I say it's kind of like Wiz War, but slightly more calibrated to my preferences. So I definitely appreciate the lineage of Wiz War and... I think everyone should at least experience it once if you have the chance. So that's Tom Jolly and Steve Jackson Games publishing Wiz War on Kickstarter. Also available as of this recording is a one-player vidge game called King's Dilemma Chronicles. And I've not yet had a chance to play this yet because they want, uh, what's the thing, uh, money. Um, but it does look like from the trailer that it has some of the elements of the King's Dilemma campaign. So if you have enviously listened in to people talking about the King's Dilemma and how amazing it was, it was amazing. I highly recommend you check out King's Dilemma Chronicles because it at least shares the world and some of the touchstones of the awesome things that happened in our campaign of the King's Dilemma. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the topic of the week, which is Serge Lejet and the great games that he left us. This is one of those occasions where, you know, I have my favorite designs of Serge Lajen. We will absolutely talk about that. But it, this is, you know, going through his catalog, uh, I, I had completely forgotten some of his tremendous contributions to the hobby in terms of his designs. And I think that it's worth starting, I think, with possibly his single greatest mechanical innovation in the hobby, if you don't mind 
and that is his co-design with Bruno Catala. He co-designed a lot of his designs with uh, the two Brunos of European design, Bruno Bruno Faiduri and Bruno Catala. And in 2005, uh, Serge Roger and Bruno Catala co-designed Shadows Over Camelot. Now, keep in mind the context here. This is three years before Pandemic. Right, so co-op games were the modern era of co-op games were kind of in their inf- infancy, sort of rejuvenated by two thousands Lord of the Rings by Reiner Knizia, and Shadows Over Camelot was, I think, the first major design to have a traitor element. That particular way of doing semi-co-op, which is a, a way of semi-co-op that I really adore. It's not the one v all version of, ha- of having a dungeon master or something, but having a traitor element. It was completely revolutionary, and it knocked everyone flat on their asses. And that tension that he introduced into the sphere is, I mean, still felt today. Like, so many designs leverage that exact idea. And just look at all the different modes of game that have done this. Like, this is X, but with a hidden trader, right? Trick-taking, auction games, you name it. They're all there. And I think they can all be traced directly to the contribution of uh, Catalan Leger. Yeah, I think it was one of the very... I think it's one of the very first big co-op games that hit the market. The ones that, you know, that flooded the market. Lots of them were out there and nice, accessible, fun. I remember all my times with Shadows of Camelot being fantastic. I remember the tension. I, I don't, uh, the rest of the, the, the Shadows Over Camelot stuff didn't really appeal to me. Like prior to pandemic, I, I, th- there isn't really a co-op that I really thought really, really shined. Uh, but I mean, I do remember the tension and just the thrill of this idea of someone among us possibly working against it. And it's something we take for granted now. I mean, almost everybody, even a, a relative newcomer to the hobby, is familiar with, oh, well, there's a hidden trader. And sometimes they even get disappointed when there isn't. <laughs> and so, again, in terms of you know mechanical innovation, in terms of bringing somebody to the genre, I, I think he completely changed the hobby. So in, in terms of that design alone. My first introduction to his designs was Mare Nordstrom back in 2003. It was very much a civilization game. It had the same sort of trappings of collecting all these different, you know, ingredients to get a bonus, trading them with all the other players, trying to get sets of stuff. It was a big, you know, war in the Mediterranean type game. Lots of, you know, frilly hats and... Frilly hats? Frilly helmets. Oh, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Greek soldiers and Roman soldiers and... And how do boats work and <laughs> all of those things. And then later on, uh, more than 10 years later, he had a huge Kickstarter to bring out, you know, very much the same game, but with a bunch of extra stuff. Yeah, yeah. Marin Ostrom Empires was published in 2016. And yeah, there was extra stuff, a lot of rebalancing. Some of the expansion from Marin Ostrom mythology was involved in the the base game of Marin Ostrom Empires. 2003 was, uh, that that's when it was first published indeed. And it was very much a game of its time, because in the early aughts, everyone was trying to design Civ Light. At the time, being the young hobbyist that I was, I didn't even really know what that meant. Because when you call something Civ Light, that could mean any number of things. Like as, as we talk about all the time on the show, civilization means different things to different people, right? And what Serge Leger was doing was very much like a, a sort of more pure version of Civ Light. He wasn't trying to do uh, a, a more playable version of Sid Meier. He was trying to do Tresham's Civ in a two to three hour experience. And at the time, I wasn't in a position to appreciate that because I hadn't yet played Tresham's Civ. Because when you're talking about civilization in that mode, you have to have the trading, you have to have the text, you have to have the one blah, 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 the, you know, the... 
A lesser designer, of course, would regard it as a series of tick marks, right? But so many contemporary d designs are like, oh, this harkens back to the classic tradition of Civ games, and then they produce a game that doesn't have any trading in it. It's like, okay, that's fine. That doesn't make it a bad game, but that doesn't harken back to the classic tradition of, of Civilization games because, you know, trading is a necessary aspect of that. And so the fact that Marin Ostrom and Marin Ostrom Empires in a two to three hour experience get all those things out is impressive. I found them fragile uh, for what it's worth, but it's certainly from a rules perspective and from a systems perspective, I thought they were great. So what did, what did you, did you have any experience with the reprint? No. Cause I only played it a couple times. The, the components were great. I thought the rebalancing was really good. Uh, and the, 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 the trading aspect definitely took through people for a loop. Cause again, here we are, you know, 13 years after the original publication where the Sid Meier mold was now, you know, the, by far the dominant understanding of what Civ games look like. And someone's like, why are we doing all this trading? <laughs> I, I didn't buy it myself. I did play it though. Of course the Winnego picked it up cause that was definitely one of his favorite games. So I did get to play with the nice new clay chips that came with the, the new version. Ooh. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't go that far. I had. I had a copy from the Kickstarter. I did get all the clay chips though. Most recently, and so uh, Marion Ostrom is someone unlike a lot of his other designs that we're going to be talking about. In that he designed that by himself. Well, by himself. Of course, there were playtesters and blah 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 blah. But there's no co-designer listed for Marion Ostrom, and there's also no co-designer listed for his. I think most recent uh, surprise hit, Nadavalier, which was published in 2020. We've talked about it a lot on the show fabulous, accessible auction game. You can play it on Board Game Arena. Yeah, it came out with two expansions. I played it a ton on Board Game Arena. Great sort of set collection, I guess you could say, in a way. I loved it. And a, and a great sort of uh, hearkening back to sort of classic Euro design minimalism, right? Not not a sprawling sea of, of, of spreadsheets and this, that, and the other. It's like, no, you're just going to do some auctions and get some set collection. Yeah, quick auctions, quick card choices you get even especially on board game arena you knock games out in no time oh yeah but nonetheless i i should say despite the i, I don't mean to minimize it despite the fact that it was hearkening back to a sort of a, a classic euro game aesthetic it nonetheless had sort of more modern innovations in the form of an almost effortless form of of deck building not quite deck building because you're not a deck but just the way you would upgrade your coins over the course of a game of nadavalier at practically no rules load and practically no opportunity cost in terms of, of doing things, you just constantly get to make these economic trade-offs that might or might not improve your economic fortunes going forward. And that that in particular was the aspect of Nadavalier that I liked the most. Uh, you know, the toys were nice, the eking out additional funds and this, that, and the other, and trying to outthink people in the blind bidding was nice, but just the the, the, the supreme effortlessness with which the economic improvement was embedded in the game made me very, very happy. So another game from back 2009 is called Ad Astra. And this is sort of, I think, uh, uh, Mr. Leggett's and Bruno Fiduti's sort of uh, reply to Catan. This was sort of like Catan in space. Mm. You're making all these different planets. It played a lot differently, but it, was, it had the same sort of feel. You know, you, you know, things trigger, and if you had presence on these different planets then you get resources and you spread out to different planets get more resources had the same sort of progression that Catan did I remember enjoying it very much I don't really I, I remember playing it when it came out I loved the artwork it was one of the and again this was in 2009 so 
uh, Euro graphic design hadn't really caught up to, well, caught up, hadn't really started mirroring some of the design elements of more Ameritrash games at the time, you know, sort of dark science fiction, comic book style art, uh, things like that. We were still mostly Franz Vowinkel and artists like that, whom I love, but definitely have a different aesthetic than when compared to a lot of the, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, dark palette science fiction stuff. Uh, it's going to be reprinted this year, actually, uh, under the title Artemis Odyssey. And uh, I'd, I'd be interested to see. It's got a different listing under Board Game Geek, so by implication, there's at least some suspicion that the rules might have been changed. And uh, that's actually one of the when when Bruno Fiduti, who is one of the his close uh, co-designers, uh, that's actually one of the things he was talking about in in terms of when he was discussing his death. It's like I've been reaching out to him about reprints for both uh, Ad Astra and for another game that they did together, which we'll probably talk about very shortly. And uh, that that that's what clued me into some of these designs were getting republished, and so that I'm looking forward to to trying it again with new eyes. So the last game for me, at least, it would be Senji, which we're, I'm sure we're going to talk about quite a bit. It is this great sort of trading relatives around board <laughs> presence has this very uh, I really love the dice, how the six different factions in the game, and to to for fights, for ties, for almost any conflict in the game. You're rolling these dice, looking for your symbols. Mark, what do you think of Senji? So Senji was published in 2008, and uh, I am hard-pressed to think of any game, troops on a map or otherwise, that has a better integration of mechanisms than Senji does. That's one of the things that I frequently criticize games for. I feel like they, they, you know, they sprawl in ways that I find unpleasant, and nothing's connected, and they're not really points of intersection. Uh, you know, the, uh, a great example of that would be, uh, even to pick on a designer I really like, would be Witchstone, right? You know, you, you, there's this action selection mechanism that might trigger a certain number of actions, but any given action you do is entirely disconnected from any other action you might be doing. Senji, everything is deeply connected, and it all redounds to negotiation. And that makes me so desperately happy. It's been on my top 20 nearly since I ever got it. I think it was the first game I ever translated. Uh, because it's mostly language independent except for the samurai power. So I remember getting a, a copy in 2007 when it was published in French. And just making paste-ups for all the samurai and subjecting it to all my Anglo friends. And uh, Senji's a masterwork. I mean, honestly, when talking with people who have a great deal of respect for Troops on a Map games done well... Uh, Senji still has a high, a lot of regard. It comes up here, there, and everywhere. It's not widely regarded, but I think it's highly regarded by those who know and care. Anyway, so that is a preface. And it gives me the feel when you watch all of uh, these feudal Japan shows and or movies, it almost lets you reenact that because you make alliance with someone yeah. and you're friendly through the whole game <laughs> and, you're, and you're trading cards and, and it's yep. lovely. But in the background, you're siphoning his cards off to their, off si to, their cards, siphoning their cards off to their opponents. Yep. And, and suddenly he realizes that you've given up, you know, everything against him and, Oh, it's so excellent. <sighs> All right. So to give uh, to give a sort of sense of what's going on, every year is divided up. Every round of the game is a year, and it's divided up into four seasons. There's winter, where you negotiate. There's fall, where you put out your orders. Summer, where you execute your orders. And autumn, where you do some economics. And there's this giant sand timer. <laughs> Lasts about four minutes. You flip that, and that's negotiation. And you're encouraged to leave the table and cut deals. Everybody has a deck of diplomacy cards. Slightly different distribution of different cards, but roughly they, they shake out to the same values. Your cards are useless to you. 
except in the form of trading them away to other players. And key amongst this are your relatives. They, these are hostages that you can hand to other players. The idea then is, and this is just a, just a small gesture to how tightly everything is, is intertwined. If I give Walker one of my hostages, and then I attack Walker, the first thing that happens in the battle declaration procedure is Walker can execute this hostage. It, it's very embarrassing for me. It's a solid green team flex for him, and he gets points, and I lose a bunch of points, and it's bad. Here's the problem. <laughs> if I give Walker one of my relatives, I can't be sure that it's going to stay with Walker because they all have the same card back and nobody knows where they end up. Walker can trade them to somebody else for who knows what. And so I might go off and attack somebody else and Huey's like, oh, your grandma's not going to like this. Like, how is grandma with Huey? It's utter genius. And it's just one of those ways in which it puts it, it maintains a constant sense of paranoia because it gives you this illusion of security. It's like oh, a very common trade at the start of the game is, oh, I'll trade you a relative, you trade me a relative, we won't attack each other. Nope, no guarantee. <laughs> yeah, it sort of gives you that diplomacy feel, the fact that you can leave the table, cut deals, make up any stories you want. Well, I trade him the card, Mark. He promised me that he wouldn't use it against you. It's not my fault. Yes. I just really needed that boat. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can trade economic support, military support, and uh, relatives. And it's a relatively a relatively simple set of interactions. But again, the way they touch almost every other element of the game. So there's the economic model of the game, which in Senji means you're incentivized to hold lots of territory in order to give economic production. But if you're producing lots of economy, you're giving up the chance of getting more certain points or you need higher number of points doing other things. This is one of the traps that, that new players or at least risk averse players sometimes fall into. It's like, oh, I'm just, uh, I'm a, I'm a turtle up. And, and yeah, there's troops on the map. That means I got to control everything. Yes. Yes. And this is indeed one of my only substantive criticisms of Senji. And that is, it is a bit fragile. It is mostly subject to fragility when people are making suboptimal decisions, especially those suboptimal decisions that are imported from other troops on a map game. And I remember one session in particular where somebody saw the opportunity to take over three territories at once uh, and did so and thought that this this meant because they had five territories now and everybody else had like two or three, they were going to win. They came in last. Uh, because... If you're doing an order that doesn't immediately generate you points, you're wasting time. Because Senji is quick and brutal, and if, if you don't know exactly where you're going to get those points, you're in trouble. And the economic production dovetails with diplomacy because there's a way to trade boats to other people, which helps you complete these sets. And then during the autumn, you cash in cards for points in a variety of different ways. Ugh, it's just It sounds like there's a lot going on, and there kind of is, but again... It hangs together so perfectly that from just a design perspective, it's it's a thing of utter beauty. To say nothing of how fun it is to play, because I, I, I played Senji just this weekend, and again, it was one of those situations where everyone at the table was like, this is so good. Yeah, because it all revolves around that same deck. So as soon as you understand what the deck does, then it all sorts of makes sense. Like these other games that have 15 different decks that you have to sort of figure <laughs> out and, and understand what they do, and, and you... So much randomness off the top. This is the same deck, and you know, well, I shouldn't say you know where your cards are going, but <laughs> your cards are open. <laughs> you can hope. And things it, will happen. Yes. And it. some people get a little tripped up with, again, trying to trying to import other conventions from other games. Like, one of the one other things that surprises people uh, when playing Senji is how brief the game is. It's going to last about 90-ish minutes, 90 to 120. But the way it's set up, you figure it's going to last like six, seven, eight rounds, but it doesn't it lasts Usually I say around four to six, sometimes three to five. And that takes people by surprise again, but that just emphasizes 
how much it's not about holding on to dirt. So many troops on a map game fall into this. Like, your goal is to hold on to dirt. It's like, eh, there's a lot of problem with that, turtling and, and all manner of other things. And so just above and beyond the fact that it's a, a work of beauty from a design perspective in terms of integration, it also just solves a lot of the troops on a map problems effortlessly. Like, another problem is the map. We've talked about how in Comet, you know, you're teleporting around and everyone's within equal distance of everyone else. Well, playing Senji, you're stuck with, you know, the shape of Japan. <laughs> there are these islands. And... No no teleporting portals? No. There are no teleporting portals. No. Instead, you have boats. Boats. You can... How do boats work, Mike? How do bo- it's, it's, it's lovely. You can either launch a raid by going to any other sea zone in the same turn at a risk, or you can do so more slowly and not at a risk. And again, so you have this simple trade-off, the simple tension about being able to interact with anybody at the table militarily, but you have a sort of concentric circles of fear, right? You know, the neighbor that you have right next to you that's amassing a force that you haven't traded family members with, you're most concerned about them. But that person way at the other end of the island that you thought you traded hostages with, they might knife you too. You're you're less concerned about them, but they might show up <laughs> at the wrong time uh, or vice versa. And uh, yeah, so... The, as I say, the only serious problem I have with Senji is sometimes people play suboptimally. And I can understand why, because it looks like a lot of lesser designs. And if you start playing it like you were playing those lesser designs, sometimes the game state can get a little bit unsatisfying. But when 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 you've played it the first time and you recognize it for what it is, a brutally efficient game of point maximization and betrayal at the right time, it's just it's just utterly unmatched, I think, in its sphere. I honestly think it's my favorite Troops on a Map game. I don't think it's it's uh, it's seen its equal in terms of cleverness of negotiation since its publication over 15 years ago. It's just a, it's just a masterwork, honestly. Yeah, it's, it does lead to that problem. As soon as you see it's sort of a, a war game, because a lot of war games break down to uh, sort of like a, uh, a poker tournament. You think that there's going to be one winner. Hmm. And it's all going to go down to the last wire as soon as, like, one person masses enough troops to take over the whole thing. And this is the exact opposite. Like yeah. you already said, it is going to – it's not going to be resolved on the map. It's going to be resolved by making sure you're getting points on every turn. Right. Because – and just, just one thing about the battle resolution system, because the battle resolution system, although sometimes fluky with respect to, to, to dice results, dovetails so beautifully with the diplomacy – I may be the better tactician, and I might have outmaneuvered you and attacked you where you didn't didn't suspect. But if you have more friends than me, even in the context of that single fight, you might lose. So every die has the side has the the uh, a facing for each player, whether they're in the game or not. And you just pitch all the dice, and some of them are going down to the benefit of the players involved. Right? If yellow is fighting purple, you pitch all the dice. You set aside all the yellow dice. You set aside all the purple dice. But then what's left is you're going to have some red, some green, some black, some blue. That's where you play the diplomacy card. You you call in favors from from opponents. Like, oh, I play this card that says all these black dice are now mine for this round round of the fight. I win because you didn't negotiate well enough, even though you came at me with a superior force. It's marvelous, and again highlights the extent to which whatever you want to do, whether it's military, whether it's economic, you have to set it up during the diplomacy phase, or you might end up uh, completely outmaneuvered. It's it's glorious. So. Yeah. 
I love Senji so much. <laughs> Senji. <laughs> yeah. It's it's nominally a three to six player game. I don't recommend it with three, uh, but I've played it several times with four and five, and it's great. Uh, it's actually subtly different when you're playing with four or five as opposed to six, because as I said, uh, every every faction's participation in the game is crucial. The game doesn't work unless all colors are represented. And there's this kind of auction system to win cards of players not in the game. Some people prefer it. With six players... If you're good at making lots of deals, there's going to be lots of fluidity and lots of cards from all players are going to be floating around. And so you can score lots of diplomatic points. Five players, oof. That sixth player that's not in the game, their cards are going to be rare and sought after. Some people prefer that tightness. I don't know. I just find it interestingly different. Same thing with four players. It's a little bit, it's, it's tighter than with six, but not quite as tight as it is with five. Anyhow. The last thing I'll say is that uh, apparently there's going to be a reprint of Mystery of the Abbey, also co-designed with Bruno Duty, which is sort of their gamely version of Clue. I don't know if you have any experience with that. I do not. Anyway, it's uh, it, it's surprisingly thematic in a lot of ways. It's got things for Vespers and like Vows of Silence and stuff like that. It's very cute. And it's one of his earliest uh, published designs. It came out in 1995. And I just wanted to give a, a hat tip to that. Uh, because it might again be in publication soon. It's 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 a shame that Senji isn't in circulation. As I say, those that know it speak very highly of it, and I know a lot of designers who think very carefully about a lot of the problems of troops on a map games. And Senji just either solves or overcomes them with such effortless brilliance. And uh, it's as I say, it's it's one of my favorite games of all time, and it's just so well done. And uh, I think it's a, a testament to his genius and to, to the, the, the talents of his co-designer, Bruno Catala. And that was my first reaction when I heard that he was dead. I was like, oh, I guess we're not going to get, we're never going to get another version of Senji. Or maybe it'll get republished. I don't know. But it won't get redesigned by the designers. And so that's... that's I do, do want to talk about, I don't want to talk about it. I just want to mention his first design, which is... Le Gang des Tractions Avant. I've never heard of that. Oh, that was his very first design, and he and it, and it, I just want to mention because it was because he did so many co-designs. He right? did this one was co-designed by with uh, Alan Mun- Munz M- Munoz Munzos, and then he decided no more Alans, Bruno's only. <laughs> <laughs> and because I've never seen any uh, designer like Serge Legette that co-designed so many times with almost everything that he's done. Uh, a lot of the Italian designers do that, right? That, that's why I call them the Italian masters, because they collaborate so much. You know, the Lucianis, the Batistas, the uh, uh, the Chiarvesios, you know, they, 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 they tend to co-design as a rule. And some French designers do the same, like Bruno Catala, for what it's worth, also co-designs with a lot of people. And uh, same thing with the people who who worked for Pearl Games, you know, a lot of a lot of those individuals, like Alain Urbain or, 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 or those. It's, it's a very common European tradition. I have to imagine that it's because a lot of the you know, if you if you can go to some of the bigger French game clubs, you're just going to rub elbows with a whole bunch of really, really talented people. And, uh, you know, Serge Leger was one of them. True. I suppose in, in a way it happens in North America as well. It's just the fact that a lot of those games don't get any design credit, right? Because it comes out of a big publishing house where all of the designs are sort of in-house. And That's they, true. They don't give That's it. true, yeah. Like a lot of, uh, or even just uh, a lot of those old uh, Games Workshop products that were really, came to fruition in, in the in-house Games Workshop uh, shops and they didn't give credit to anybody at all. Uh, so yeah, that's a good point. Anyway, uh, I've had a tremendous amount of joy playing a lot of the designs of Serge Roger, and so I was very, very sad to hear of his passing. And... 
Uh, I hope that uh, those of you that have not played any of his games uh, take a chance. I mean, it's available on Board Game Arena. If you want to try Nadavalier, it's available for you, and I recommend it. I'm so glad he gave so much joy to so many people with the games that he designed. Absolutely. Very well put, Walker. And that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thank you so, so much for spending time with us, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bicking. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.